So that's the, uh, you know, it's the third time for me to uh, begin my part with the end of that song. And every time I've just felt the Lord speak to me about confronting an orphan spirit. Saying out loud that it has no place here. That you're not an orphan. That you belong. That your Father knows you and picked you and chose you. And it's on purpose that you're here right now. And that we can live our lives with this orphan spirit making us feel like we don't fit in. And there's just no place for us. And we're trying to prove all the time that we do. But deep inside we feel we don't. Man, this song is God's heart. There's no mountain that he won't climb up. No wall that he won't kick down. Lie that he won't tear down. Coming after you. It's not presumptuous for you to say, I belong. It's not out of place for you to claim, I'm his and he's mine. So in Jesus' name, man, I break that spirit off of you right now. And I pray that you would experience the Father heart of God in your life. And that you'd experience the heart of a God, a child of God. Those two things would connect. You would know how much you're loved and wanted and desired. That you'd never feel like an outsider. A visitor. A stranger. But you'd feel a part of something. God would draw your heart today. Well, I pray you experience God's heart. That's what I really pray. And I pray that in the only name by which it's even possible, that name is Jesus. Amen. And amen. Yeah, wow. You can be seated. Sure glad that you're uh, here today. Got um, real quick something that I want to, uh, to do uh, before I teach. Just a quick announcement that I felt like I was supposed to make. Um, we don't do membership very often in our church. We kind of downplay it. We don't make a big deal about it, so we only end up doing it twice a year. But I'm not sure uh, that because we downplay it so much that people understand what it is and uh, why we ask for it. So I wrote down in my notes, I just went in my mind, what are the reasons a person should consider becoming a member to a church? And these are the things that I wrote that just came out of my heart. Um, Here's the bottom line, and I put it in uh, these few words. You are called to a covenant of connectedness. Do you believe that? You're called to be connected here. You're not called just to come and listen to a message. You're not called just to come near. You're not called to just be around. You're called to be connected. This is what the Bible teaches. You are part of a body when you come here. And if you're part of a body, then you're a member of that body. And so membership reflects the idea that you're part of something. The Bible teaches covenant. And when you become a member, what you're saying is, I understand covenant. Here's an important one that most people miss all the time. If authority 
is like an umbrella of covering. If God uses authority to protect our lives, then as your pastor, there's a certain covering that comes with being your pastor if you put yourself under the covering. If I'm here, and that's the authority God's given me, and you line yourself up here, a lot of the stuff that the devil tries to do gets stopped by the covering. Does that make sense? But if you're over here, how much more do you have to fight the enemy? Because you're not under covering. It's as easy as saying, by being a member, I'm putting myself under covering. How about these two? They're real simple. For the good of your church, that's an important one, and for the good of your soul. Pastors are charged with the care of your soul. And here's what I know. I've just done this so long. The only way a pastor can care for your soul is if they know you. No one can guess at the condition of your soul. No one can just presuppose what the condition of your soul is. We can only know when you're in connectedness. Does that make sense? And so for the own good of your soul, become a member. Now, I got this really silly uh, illustration, but it sort of works for what I want to demonstrate for you. Um, I fly enough. I teach in enough places, and I do enough things that it made sense to quit just shopping around for the cheapest airline ticket and put all of my eggs in one basket with one airline and try to get some kind of status. So I picked United. Denver's a hub for United. United flies mostly where I fly to when I'm invited someplace, and their schedule works for me. And more often than not, the ticket is about the same. Sometimes a little more, but that wasn't my biggest issue. I just decided I was going to get status on an airline because if a flight gets bumped, the last person that gets helped is the person with no status. So I wanted to get status. Plus, you can get an upgrade every once in a while, and that ain't too bad either. So I started flying, and this last year I flew enough, I became a 1K on United. That's 100,000 miles in a year. That's a lot of flying. But here's what it did for me. Boy, it gave me status. So that if something goes wrong, the first person they take care of is the person with status. The first person that's rescheduled on a flight is a person with status. And in a way, that's what I'm saying about membership. A church takes care of everybody. I get it. But how do you sort who gets help first? It's the ones you know, yes or no. It's just the way that it works. You don't know when something's going on in someone's life unless they tell you, and they don't tell you unless they're known. That's status. It's not position as much as it's being known. And I'm trying to tell you that when you become a member, what you're saying is, I want to be known. I want to be connected. I want to say it's not about what else is out there. It's about right here. Now, by the way, if you become a member, can you ever leave? Of course. I'm not going to follow you around. You don't get a tattoo on your forehead or your hand, and you can't ever buy or sell unless you... Oh, come on. Come on. Thank you, Julia, for laughing at that right there. It's snowing. It's cold outside. I like that joke. So anyway, uh, a week from today, we're going to do a little dessert, uh, a uh, membership dessert. If you're interested in becoming a member, if you're not and you'd like to become, um, then here's what you would do. You might want to write this down, jfc.org slash... Events. Say it one more time. JFC.org slash events. And you could register. Here's why. We have food and we have child care and we need to make sure that we have enough of both to take care of you if you're going to come to that and you'd like to be a member. Uh, by the way, you can come to it and not be obligated if you just want to listen to what it means to be a member. That's great too. And I need to say this. Um, not everybody who's here wants to be known. Not everybody who's here right now is looking to be connected. I understand that. So let me say something to you if you fall in that position. Maybe you were wounded someplace else and you're just trying to recover. 
take all the time you need to recover. Sit back and be anonymous. But if you're like 10 years into anonymity, something's not going right. Okay? Something's not going right. It's okay to not be okay. But God doesn't want to leave you that way. Did you just hear what I said? He doesn't want to leave you that way. So if you need to be anonymous right now, I do understand that more than most. I really do. And it's okay just to sit and get healed. But if you're past that at some point, think about what I'm talking about. You're called to connectedness, and you've got to make some decisions on your side about that thing. Okay, enough of those things. Let me pray and refocus our hearts, and then we'll jump into this message. So, Father, um, <clears throat> let's see. Here's what I need. I need a clear mind. I need a clear heart. And I need my words, God, to make a lot of sense. Uh, I want to pray right now um, that everything that I say and everything that I do and all that I represent right now uh, won't lift me up and lift our church up, but it will lift Jesus up. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw people unto me. And so God, hide me, hide, behind me, hide me clearly behind Jesus right now, behind the cross, and behind who he is and what he's done. God, I'm not lifting up what we've done and who we are and who I am, but who Jesus is. I pray that that's what people would see right now. God, I ask that you'd open hearts, open minds, open ears. The things that you said we can have, we can have. The things that you said we are, we are. And the things that you want us to do, we can do. God, I just thank you for that. Let it be clear and let it be understood. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to talk about um, encounters today. Um, specifically, a Hebrew word, paga, P-A-G-A. And um, I'm going to begin telling a little story um, Several years ago, before we started the church, I was on staff at a really uh, awesome church in northern Colorado, Fort Collins, Loveland area, called Resurrection Fellowship. It's a great church. Uh, Jonathan Wiggins, if you go to church here, Jonathan Wiggins is the pastor there. I have him come down and speak here. Yeah, he's an awesome speaker, but he wasn't the pastor. The pastor's name was John Stalker, and he is still my pastor. Pastors need pastor. He's my pastor. He's the guy that I talk to when I don't know what to do, and when I need spiritual counsel, that's my pastor right there. He was the pastor of the church. Chris and I went there as the youth pastors. Things went really well for us. And after several years, he promoted me and I became the associate pastor. It was a large church, several thousand people, a staff in the 30s. I, I mean, uh, a budget that was $10 million. It was, a, it, was, it was a large church. And at 30 years old, I got promoted to this position. That's pretty crazy. You know, you have two emotions. The first one is you think to yourself, I must be pretty smart. And then you realize... I'm just in the right place at the right time. God is really smart. And uh, I wasn't in that position for two weeks, and the pastor went skiing with his daughter, Dion, who is one half of the campus pastors at our Parker location now. And uh, he was skiing with her, and at the top of the hill, he experienced chest pain. By the time he got to the bottom, he could barely stand up. So they rushed him by ambulance to Northern Colorado Medical Center, uh, examined his heart, and it was so bad that they said it's quadruple bypass. There's not stents, there's not medicine, there's not recovery. What they do is they crack your chest open, your rib bones. They split them back, and then they take veins. They take arteries, and they reroute it around your heart. The heart has a tremendous way of actually being able to fix itself if it has opportunity to do that. But here's the problem with it. Once they do that, it's a four- to six-month recovery. There's no way around that. So this happens on a little Saturday morning. Saturday night, he's at the hospital. And then later that evening, he calls the staff together, and he just tells us the bad news. Hey, it's life and death. I have no choice. I can't wait. They don't even want me to be making this speech to you right now. But we need to talk about what's going to go on and what could happen. And then he ends it by saying this. While I'm out, John's pastor. 
Those were scary words. Those were big words, man. Words that I was not prepared for, and that's not what I had signed up for. I would signed up to be his assistant, not to be the pastor. And I found myself as a youth pastor. John, Joanna, you'll get a kick out of this. I pulled all of the messages that I had together. I compiled them all. I thought I had four good messages is really what I had. So I had one month worth of material, right? And then after the month, I ran out of stuff. And it was obvious to the people listening. It was really obvious to me. But it was obvious to a guy on our staff named Larry Bridge. Larry was this really cool guy. He was our missions pastor. And Larry recognized and summed up real quickly. He could look and he could see the dude is out of messages. He's over his head and he needs help. But instead of embarrassing me, he would come to me every morning with this long sheet of scriptures. And every one of them was about waiting on God, experiencing God, finding God. And he introduced me to this concept. He said it's a Hebrew word. It's when we cross paths with God, it's called pagah, P-A-G-A. It means in English to meet, that God will meet us. And he said, John, God wants to meet you every day to give you what you need for this day so you can lead this staff. He doesn't intend on leaving you to do this by yourself. And every day, and I mean every day, he would put on my desk or hand me in person a list of about 30 scriptures on it. Now, at first, I'm like, dude, why are you judging me? What, 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 you don't think I've got this? And then after a little while, I realized, if you don't take his help, nobody's going to help you. And so I just began to be thankful. And he explained to me that God wants to meet me. He's designed appointments all day long for our paths to cross. And that when we cross paths, God wants to give me something. He wants to give me something for the staff. He wants to give me encouragement. He wants to just smile at me. You ever thought about the fact that God just wants to cross paths to smile at you? And if you never think that way, what do you think about when you cross paths with God? That he wants to frown at you? <laughs> that he wants to slap at you? That he wants to... What is the God you serve? What does he want to do with you? He began to introduce me to this idea that this pagod, this meeting, happened over and over and over all day long. And that the more we became aware of it, the better we could be at it experiencing God. Hey, man, it was... It was foundational, it was fundamental, it was eye-opening. The amount of scriptures that talk about God meeting us and those that are waiting on the Lord for that meeting and those that are experiencing God, it was, it was just incredible. So let me just stop there and just explain to you. Uh, some of you men, you claim that you never have experiences with God, but I wonder when you get to heaven if you were to say that and God were to show you your life. I wonder if it will become evident to you that dozens of times a day he was trying to cross paths with you, but you just weren't aware of it. So let me give you an example of this. Moses. One of the stories of Moses is him with the burning bush when he got his commission to go and set the people free. Here's how the Bible phrases this story. Moses was in the desert where it's very dry and a bush was on fire. The Bible says when Moses turned aside to see the sight and God saw that, then he spoke to Moses. God didn't call to Moses and Moses turned aside. Moses turned aside and recognized it and then God spoke to him. I wonder how many times God is asking and seeing if you will recognize him at a junction and you walk right on by it. You know, you do it in the natural all the time. At least I did. Uh, when I was 17 and Chris was 16, we met at a church. I was not a church kid, but I sure fell in love with a church kid. Head over heels, man. I was trying to impress her. My rush shirt didn't do it. My long hair didn't do it. My Monte Carlo didn't do it. <laughs> the church was having an overnighter. And I thought, that's the perfect place 
little adult supervision in the middle of the night. I'll make my move. <laughs> so I show up at this church all nighter. I'm 17, she's 16, and they play hide and go seek in the middle of the night. And I grab her hand. And I say, come on, let's go hide. Under the guise of hiding, I'm holding her hand. And I wouldn't let go of it. It was the first move. What a smooth move that was right there. Pagat. She worked at a dry cleaner. Now, she's 16 and I'm 17. And every other day, I was bringing stuff to the dry cleaner. When's the last time a 17-year-old had anything to do with a dry cleaner? I'm asking my mom, all the, what do you need? I'll take it over there. Right, Give it to me. I'll take it right now. And I was constantly doing that to run in, trying to get. She would not pay attention to me. And finally, on the 10th or 12th trip over there, she finally, what are you doing? Trying to meet you. And all of a sudden, boing. And here's the point. When you become aware. How about this? When you respond to the pursuit, the relationship is possible. But until you respond, that person can be trying over and over and over again. And until you respond, nothing happens, yes or no. And I wonder how many times God's crossed paths with you. So here's the problem. We don't recognize that the inconvenience is an opportunity to experience God. We don't recognize that the delay is an opportunity. We don't recognize the burning bush that God sent our way. We think to ourselves, that's a pain in the butt is what that is. That's a person I don't want to deal with. That's a situation I don't want to have to have. That's a traffic jam that I don't want to have to drive through. What if in the traffic jam, the Holy Spirit were to show up? So I just wonder how many times God's going to say, man, I tried to cross paths with you constantly, but you wouldn't turn aside and look. I pursued and I initiated, but you never responded. I love you, and you'll go to heaven, but boy, there's a scripture in Revelation that says God will dry every tear. What tears do you think he will dry? It might be the tear of recognition that God tried so hard and that we didn't see it. That would be the last tear you cry because heaven's not a place for tears. But before going in, what it, it says he will dry away the tears of loss. What loss? Of what could have been? of what he tried to do, of the words we said about him not caring about me. Am I making any sense? Am I there? You get me? You feel me? Man, I tried over and over and over, and once she finally responded to the initiation, the pursuit, hey, two months from now will be 35 years. 35 years. It's a long time by anybody's standard. 35 years. I can't wait for 50 May God give us 50. Isaiah 6, 4. This is a scripture that talks about what I'm trying to teach you right now. Isaiah is a prophet and he wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of God, God meets him who rejoices in doing righteousness. The word meet is the word paga, P-A-G-A. It's the Hebrew word. The English word is meet. The Hebrew word is paga. So God Pagaz, or God meets the person who rejoices in doing righteousness. And the Bible is filled with scriptures that have that idea that God sets up meetings with you all day long. And if you become aware of it, the opportunity to respond to his pursuit is there and then all things are possible. All right, here's what I want to teach you today. Recently, we had a really sweet Paga experience with God, Chris and I. And I want to talk to you about it because it's for all of us, not just for us. It's a little visionary. Here's the thing about prophecy and history. It's only prophecy if you say it before. It's history if you repeat it after. So this is a little prophetic. There's not full context for everything that I'm going to say. 
You're going to look at what I'm about to say and go, I don't see how that's possible. But God, it's a meeting place. God has to do something. Uh, how many of you were here a few weeks ago when I did the apples and the honey? Are you here for that? So I came back from Israel, and uh, three times a year, they have major celebrations, Pentecost, Tabernacles, and Passover. And um, one of the ways they celebrate is they take apples, which are sweet, and then they dip it in honey, which makes it even sweeter, and then they toast the new year. And they just had their new year a couple of weeks ago, so they take the apples and the honey, and they toast to the new year. And so um, I, after the heart attack... Um, I have to take this medicine that makes like extreme heat really uncomfortable for me. So when the group, there's one day they go down to the Dead Sea and it gets really hot down there, like 110, 120. I can't take it. It's just too hot for me. So Chris and I stayed back in Jerusalem while the group went down to the Dead Sea. And they do Masada and they do Engedi and they get into the water and bob like a cork and it's a lot of fun. But we stayed behind in Jerusalem and we had a great breakfast. And then I went back to the room and I picked up my Bible and I started reading. And all of a sudden, man, I start crossing paths with God. And I was real concerned. I've shared this. It's our 20th anniversary. And I wanted a big celebration for it. We were talking about doing fireworks. We were talking about renting a park. We were talking about having a drum corps. We were going to do this whole thing. But I never could get it done because we planted three churches in the last year and a half. We've given away over a million dollars. We've given away 1,200 people. I just couldn't afford it. It was not in the books to do it. So I decided, hey, we'll wait a year, we'll celebrate when we're 21, and then I joked, when we're 21, we can drink and have a real good time. Uh. <laughs> Just kidding. So uh, the idea of celebrating for the 21st became the focus. So I went back to my room, we're in Israel, we're in Jerusalem, and I just, I'm, I'm, I'm See, in Hebrew, this is a missing element. Can I just talk right now? Is it okay? Hebrew is a really interesting language in that each number is assigned a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So I'll give you a for instance. When Jesus, uh, after the resurrection but before the ascension, he's waiting on the beach and the disciples have fished all night and they've caught no fish. And then Jesus yells from the beach, hey, have you caught anything? No, we haven't. Throw your net down on the other side of the boat. Remember the story? And they let down their net, and they get a catch so big they can't even get it in the boat. It's ripping the net. And the Bible says when they counted the fish, 153 fish. Why in the world does it tell us 153? Because letters and numbers have an assignment with each other, and the number 153 in Hebrew means Jesus is Lord. So even in the amount of fish they caught, there's a message that he's giving to the disciples, I am Lord. So now I know some of these things, and I recognize some of these things. So when I go back to my room, I'm thinking of the 21st celebration. Not the 20th anymore, but the 21st. And so I just decide, what is the numerical and alphabetical assignment of 21? What does 21 mean? Not numerology, by the way. Numerology is predicting the future. But there is biblical numbers of importance, and it's completely different. So I just, what does 21 mean? 21 has two meanings. Uh, one of them is not very good. Uh, 21 if it's just a, a, a length of time, 21, uh, it represents judgment. I slammed the book and like, well, I'm, I rebuked that. No, I did not do that. I'm like, God, judgment? And I kept reading on, but it says uh, 21 also, if it represents the end of a number, represents the blessing you get for going through the difficult time. And all of a sudden, Pagai, hear God speak to me. 
So man, I start reading like crazy. Where does this come from? And where does it come? And God just took me to a couple of different places. And this scripture is what I landed on and what I studied out. And I really felt like the Lord spoke it to me. So I came back and I shared it with my board and I shared it with my staff, but I've not shared it with my church. And that's what I'm going to do right now. But I need to say this to you. The devil loves to kill things when they're in their infancy. Pharaoh killed babies. Herod killed babies. The devil loves to take what's weak and can't speak for itself and strangle it before it stands up. So what I'm going to share with you right now is something small and it needs to be protected. So be careful what you do with it. Be careful what you hear and be careful what you say with it. I'm asking. You hear me? Okay, I'm going to share with you a baby. Genesis 47, 27 reads this way. Meanwhile, it's one verse. The people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen. We'll say that one more time. The people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. There they acquired property and they were fruitful and their population grew rapidly. And I was having this experience with God where he was speaking to me about 21 and he gave me this scripture right here and he began to talk to me about the scripture and about our future and what he wanted to do. There were five things that came out of it. I'm only going to be able to teach three of them today. I'll give you the other two next week. Let me just get to the first one right here. The Bible says in that scripture, pull it back up. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled. The first one is just simply the word settled. So let me just talk and say this to you. I recognize if you go to church here, it's been the most unsettled time in the 20 years that I've been pastor. We have seen more people be sent out, more resource, more, more, more things have happened in the last year than have happened in the previous 19 prior to that. It's been an unsettling time. And when it's unsettled, no matter how much you trust leadership, no matter how much you like your church, when things change, it always produces one thing. People don't like change. And change makes us feel like something is wrong. If it wasn't wrong, why are we changing? And then the devil's really good at giving you a sentence and asking you to fill in the blank. Why don't you speculate what's wrong? And so people begin to speculate. John must be having problems with Dan. John must be having problems with Bob. John must be having trouble with Evan. These are three pastors that we sent out to plant churches. And the opposite, the truth couldn't be more farther from that right there. I sit on Dan's board. I sit on Bob's board. And I'm an overseer for Evan's church. I just gave Evan a raise. Bob just got a raise. Dan, I'm going to make wait a while because... You know. <laughs> He just got started. Uh, let me read a scripture to you. Look at this scripture real quick. Uh, this, is, um, this is from Proverbs. The blessing of the Lord makes a person rich. And then this part. And he adds no what to it. You know, when God does something, the way you can know it's God is that there's no sorrow with it. If this change that we just had wasn't of God then it would be full of sorrow. And I want you just to look real quick. Do you detect sorrow in your pastor? And if you know any of those pastors, there's no sorrow in them either. God is doing the most unique, wonderful thing right now that we've ever done. Believe it or not, in order to multiply, you have to divide first. That's what the kid with the fish and the loaves had to do. He had to be willing to take what he had, break it in half so that multiplication could happen. Yes or no? You have to divide so that you can multiply. Now, in America, what we've learned is that division is of the devil. When a church divides, the devil's done. And that's true. The devil has a counterfeit for everything that God does. But God's original plan for the church was that it would divide so that it could reach more people. It could multiply. 
And what I've done was to divide what we were in order to multiply. We can reach more people with those churches out doing what they're doing than trying to keep everything inside of here. This is an interesting thought. The whole settled issue. One of the things that I've asked the Lord is, God, when is this going to stop? How much more do I have to do? See, sometimes people think, Pastor, you're the one that's doing I'm trying to follow God. And so it's not about me doing something. It's about trying to follow God. But I've asked him too. I'd like it to be settled. And what I felt like the Lord said, 21st year, it will settle and it will settle nicely. But hear what I just said. We're not in the 21st year yet. There's a couple more months, and that means there's still some unsettling to happen. Am I making an announcement? Nope. And don't worry, I'll be here. I'll be here. But things are still shaking out like they need to shake out, and God's still doing what he's doing, and it's going to be okay. But I just want to, it's prophecy if I say it ahead of time. It is history if I say it after. I'm telling you right now, the 21st year is going to be a great year. It's going to be a year where we're very settled. Settled in what we're doing, settled in who's doing what. Hey, this is a story. I, it's always so busy and there's always so much going on and I never have enough time. Let me talk about the Lakewood campus real quick. Because in 20 years, I never had to shut anything, but I shut our Lakewood campus in the last few months. And that was a difficult decision. It was a really difficult decision. I just came to the fact that, hey, we've put so much into it and I can't get it to go the way that I want to. And I really felt like what the Lord said is you're doing something you're not supposed to be doing. And let me just ask this question. Have you ever done something you're not supposed to be doing? Me too. What does that make me? Human. Don't go stupid. Human. Human. (laughs) Makes me human. So once I realized that, I met with the people there and said, listen, uh, this is what's going on, the leadership. This is what I feel like God is saying. What do you sense? They agreed with me. And we made a decision, we need to close this campus. So I decided I'm going to face the music. I had a meeting at that campus with the people that went to that campus, the people that have trusted me, the people that have believed in me, the people that have given into our ministry. I went there and I just told myself, be willing to take a beating. These people are mad. You're closing their church. If they need to get mad at you, if they need to yell at you, if they need to call you names, let let them do it. Don't defend yourself. Don't argue with them. Just go and take the beating. So I prepared myself for it, and there were a few mad people, but mostly there were people who got it, who understood, who clapped for me. But the bottom line was this. When I was closing the meeting after about three hours, this is what I said. This building will not sit vacant very long. There is a church just like we were 18 years ago who's in a temporary facility that God is blessing, and they're all praying and fasting right now for God to do something in their midst and to give them something that they can grow into. And I said, I just want you to know in the next little while, that church, I don't know who they are, but they're going to materialize. Within one week, this vineyard church ends up contacting me. The pastor's name is Christian Summers. He's in his early 30s. His church was about 150. He's meeting in a library of a school less than a quarter of a mile from that facility. And they've been fasting and praying. And he heard about the building. Now, here was the deal. I had several people contacted me to get into that building, who's the right person? Because I'm looking for the God factor, not for the John factor. I'm not trying to sell it to make a lot of money. I'm trying to get out of it what we've got into it to give somebody a really good deal. Who's that person? So this guy comes and sits down with me, and he says, John, uh, I had a vision. And I said, what was your vision? He said, God lifted me straight up above that building, and he turned me to the east, not to the west. This is important. The building sits at Hampton and Wadsworth. If you go west, 
the skin color turns white. If you go east, the skin color turns brown. That church is there to be a multicultural church, and I did not want that church to be used by a person as a stepping stone to go west. I wanted it to keep ministering to the east, but to do more than we had ever done before. So this guy told me, God lifted me up and showed me that's my city going to the east. So he said, we joined a baseball team and we're the only white family on the baseball team. And not only that, we're the only kid whose parents are together on the team. And he said, those people are the ones who make up my church. So if you put me in this building, I want you to know we have a lot of different skin color in this building. Dude couldn't have been saying anything better to me. He had no idea what he was saying. Listen to this story. I put him in the building. The first weekend, he doubles in size. The second weekend, he almost doubles in size again. Since then, man, rock and roll history. He's filling the place out. God's doing this great thing. I'm so excited for them. We are not a vineyard church and have no connection to the vineyard, but that's what this church has always done. It's been about the kingdom, not about John. It's been about Jesus and not about Jubilee. Man, I'm so excited for them. I'm so excited for them. It will be a settled year for us next year. Uh, the second thing, let me just teach you something really cool that I learned. I didn't know this. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of, what does it say? One more time. The region of? Goshen in Egypt. Um, I, I know it says that, but for some reason, I always thought the land of Goshen was in the promised land. There's an old spiritual that talks about the land of Goshen, and somehow in my head, I don't know why, I connected the land of Goshen being the promised land, but it's not. It's a region in Egypt. But let me tell you what it was. Uh, Pharaoh had a dream, and Joseph, who was a Hebrew, had ended up in Pharaoh's court. He predicted what Pharaoh's dream was. Pharaoh's dream was there were seven fat cows, seven skinny cows. Seven fat ears of wheat, seven skinny ears of wheat. The, fat, uh, the, the, the skinny cows ate up the fat cows, and the skinny wheat ate up the fat wheat. And Pharaoh goes, I have no idea what it means, but I need someone to tell me. Joseph tells him, you're going to have seven of the most prosperous years ever, and then you're going to have seven of the worst famine Ever. And Pharaoh said, what should we do? And Joseph said, over the next seven years, store up the grain, store up the meat, and the world will come to Egypt to be fed during the famine. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens. Man in Egypt becomes the most wealthy place in the world. But Joseph had a father named Jacob. And Jacob and his sons came to Egypt. Joseph brought them there during the famine, and Joseph uh, encouraged them. Now, let me read. Go back to Genesis 47 real quick. Let me read it to you again and then teach you something really cool. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in Egypt. In Goshen, they acquired property. They were fruitful, and their population grew rapidly. Goshen, the meaning of Goshen is the most fruitful and the best of the land. That's what it means. But when it was given to the Israelis, it was the worst place in Egypt. The worst place. How did it become the best place? Let me read this to you. So remember, we're reading from Genesis 47. I'm going to read now from Genesis 46. So this happens before 47, right? Okay. You must tell him, Joseph is telling his father what to say to Pharaoh when he's bringing him into Egypt. You must tell Pharaoh... We, your servants, have raised livestock all our lives as our ancestors have always done. When you tell him this, he will let you live here in the region of Goshen for the Egyptians despise what? 
They despised shepherds. They hated the Jews, and they hated what the Jews did, so they gave them the worst part of Egypt to raise their animals and to produce their crops in, and here's what happened. Because God was with his people like he was with Joseph, it became the most fertile part of all of Egypt. And the Egyptians wanted to take back from the Hebrews what, what, what Pharaoh had given them, but they couldn't because Pharaoh had decreed it and God had blessed him. What it says to you and I is this. You may be living in a place right now in your marriage, in your health, in your life, in your family, at your job, and it may seem barren, it may seem ugly, and you may think the devil gave you the least part. All you need is the presence of God in it and it becomes the best part. And then here's what will happen. The devil will want to try to take it back from you. Don't let him do it. Don't let him do it. Man, I felt like what the Lord said to me, because I asked this question, God, I'm giving away all the resource. What are you going to do with us? We're going to end up with nothing. I'm giving it all away. I'm not asking for anything in place of it. Evan wants to start his church. He comes to me, and this is what he says. Where should I move? How far away should I move? I said, don't move. Stay right here where you're known and start your church. Bob wants to start his church. I give him that beautiful building at our Highlands Ranch property. Dan wants to start. I give him Castle Rock, and I've given all the people that attended all the, more than a thousand people I've given away, like there's some easy resource to get. More than a million dollars in assets. And I'm thinking to myself, God, we're giving away all the good stuff, and this is what God said to me. Dude, I've given you Goshen. All you need is my presence, and it will fertilize and multiply. You can't give it. You know, there's a scripture that says, there's a time in the spirit when the sower and the reaper come together and the reaper can't get it out of ground fast enough because the sower is putting it back in right behind him. There's a point in the spirit where God can bless us so much you can't give it away fast enough that God's giving it back to you. Would you like to experience those times? Me too, man. Me too. The third one in that scripture, let me read that again. Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled. Goshen... And there they acquired property. I'm going to stop here in this message, and I'll go next week. Let me talk about property real quick. I don't know what I'm saying right now. You know what really is funny about this message? I feel like it may be one of the more significant messages as the teacher and leader of this church I could teach, and it's a weekend where we get our first snow. And I was tempted to alter what I was going to speak on because I wanted more people to hear it, not less. But I felt like the Lord said, all you need is the right people to hear it. You don't need more people. So look at me real quick. You must be the right ones. You must be the right ones. It must make you pretty special. Even if you're wearing somebody else's jersey over there. Right? <laughs> I don't know what I'm saying. There's no context for this. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it will be. This is the city that God has given me. This is the region that God has sent me. So it will be somewhere here. This is a wonderful facility, but it doesn't let me do the thing that God called me to do ultimately. I shared with you a dream I had that was a supernatural dream last week. Chris and I were early in our ministry, and it was not going well. Uh, we had been invited to leave, and... Um, my job lasted one year to the day, and I was failing as a pastor. It's my first full-time position. 
We were lower than low could be, and there was no reason to think anything good was ever going to come from it or happen. In fact, we were considering getting out of the ministry. We had gone to bed really depressed and really tired, two little babies, and woke up, um, not awake, not asleep. Jesus came in a room, and I never saw his face, but he stood right next to me, began to talk to me, and he talked to me about my future and what I would do and who I would be. Just encouraged me. That's all. It was a pagah. He crossed paths with me and he encouraged me, smiled at me. But he said this to me at the very end of it. So you know it's me and not you. Your wife's having the same dream right now. Now I know better than to go, Chris, you're having a dream. When you wake up, here's what you'll say. I know better than that. I don't need to help God. That just, that takes away from God being supernatural. I opened my eyes and I look at her and she opened hers. And I said, are you having a dream? And she said, yes. I said, what are you dreaming? She said, you're standing in front of people and you're teaching and training people. She said, as far as the eye can see, there's people. They care what we're saying. Well, of course, man, I came out of bed. That's exactly what God was telling me, and I'm trying to write it all down. Many of those things we've done, but the main part of that thing that we have been called to do, we haven't. And yet I know that God called me here. This facility is great but it doesn't have the classroom facility that I need. It doesn't have a place to be able to do conferences. It does not set itself up for a teaching and training center. In my mind, I think they're one and the same, although they could be two different things. That's why I said I don't know what I'm saying right now. I'm just telling you something's coming. We own a building here and in Highlands Ranch that have several million dollars worth of equity in them. So this is not a pipe dream. By the way, who gets to decide what happens with that? The members of this church. Pastor John, it's not my building, it's not my money, and it's not my decision. It's our decision. So being a member is an important thing. I don't know what I'm talking about right now, but it's history if I say it after, and it's prophecy if I say it ahead of time. There's something coming down the road, something different than what we're doing right now. I feel like the Lord has called me to be pastor here. I feel like he's given me my health, and he's given me the years that the locust stole from me, God's given back to me. And I feel better right now than I have felt since I've been here as pastor. I feel stronger, and I have more confidence and I believe in what I'm saying right now. I'll be here. But it's going to take a different shape in the near future. I don't know what that is, though. That's the problem. Now, I said this last night. I've already gotten an email from people. Um, hey, I'm selling this building. Hey, this building. So I'm not buying any buildings right now. I'm not taking up any offerings. I don't have a clue how much it's going to cost. How can I take up an offering for it? There'll be a supernatural factor. Listen to me real quick. Here's how God's done it every step of the way for this church. There will be some supernatural factor that will materialize and we'll know what we're supposed to do. This is not hire a real estate person and then go shopping. There's a supernatural factor that'll come our way. Remember I said it. Remember I said it. That's what I'll stand up when I talk about it again. Uh, the next part of that verse talks about, look, just real quick, they acquired property, and then these last two things, they were fruitful, and their population grew rapidly. Um, I'm going to end on this thought right here. The opposite of fruitfulness 
the opposite of fruitfulness. Um, it's God's will that you're fruitful. So I'm going to say that one more time. It's a real good place to say amen. It's God's will that you're fruitful. Uh, so one more time, I'm going to say it, and you, you're going to say amen. It's God's will that you're fruitful. Amen. It is God's will. The Bible is full of the fact that when God prunes us, it's so that we are more fruitful. When God establishes us, it's so that we're fruitful. When God gives us back the years the locusts have eaten, it's so that we can be fruitful. God's will for our life is that we are fruitful. It's all through the Bible, and this scripture talks about fruitfulness, but I want to end today talking about the opposite of what fruitfulness is, and next week I'll talk about fruitfulness. The prophet Haggai had these really strong words that he challenged the people of Israel with. Listen to them. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but you're harvesting little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, and you're still thirsty. You put on clothes, but you're unable to keep warm, and your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets or a bag that has a hole in it. That's the opposite of fruitfulness. Fruitfulness is just the exact opposite of that. That you sow little but you reap much. That you drink and you're not thirsty. You eat and you're not hungry. You put on what you've earned and it keeps you warm and it's enough. And what you reap multiplies rather than goes away. And I'm just going to say this real quickly, prophetically. The church is living in a time where the enemy has stolen fruitfulness from us. And we have learned to accommodate drought as normal rather than fruitfulness as normal. And if one or two people get blessed, then we go, wow, look at how unusual that is. That's the way it was supposed to be. You are supposed to be fruitful. Now, don't go, my, means my, I'm supposed to have more money. That's only a part of it. Fruitful, man, is your whole, what you put your hands to should work. Your marriage should work. Your family should work. Your, your plans, your activities, they should work. Am I talking to anybody? Guys, come on, man. It should work. And we have learned to accommodate a drought. For a small time in my life, I lived in California when they were going through a drought. It seemed like they were always going through a drought. And they would had the weirdest thing. Uh, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. And it went, ah, that's so funny. You know, when you're 12 years old, that is hilarious. That is hilarious. When you're 12, that is stinking hilarious. But when you're 55, that's stupid. And we've learned to accommodate drought in our lives and think of it as normal. And we come up with little slogans that make it cute. And it's not cute to not be fruitful. It stinks. Yes or no? It stinks when your marriage is being decimated and it stinks when your health is being stolen and it stinks when you can't make ends meet and it stinks when spiritually nothing's working for you. Yes or no? Yes. So I'm talking to you right now. And we have learned to accommodate drought as normal and the heavens need to open up and it needs to rain. Yes. I'd like to prophesy a season of rain over your life. A season of plenty. A season of more than enough. He is the God of more than enough. That's one of his names. More than enough. Never the God of if only. The God of more than enough. Father. Mm. Man, the only thing I feel like I can do is just try to break off.
with the authority that you've given me, that spirit. God, whatever that thing is that causes lack to be normal, failure to seem common, that thing that you gave us, God, that you intended to turn into a blessing and that somehow the enemy has kept it in a place where it's infertile and it's not growing and it's not happening. And year after year, a person is trying to plant, trying to sow, and reaping little. You tell that person, pay attention to what's happening to you. Look at your ways. Check out what's going on. Don't be okay with this. Again, Father, nothing we can do about this except to come to you and ask, God, be merciful right now. You said you would rebuke the devourer on our part. You said you would give back the years that the locusts have eaten. You said you would be the one who would repay what's been stolen. Man, what is so important about those years that the devil tries to steal them and that God wants to give them back to us? They're years of fruitfulness. Years of fruitfulness. Let the people that hear this message hear the word of the Lord, man. You're supposed to be fruitful. It was God's intention, it was His purpose, and it was His plan, and now it's His timing. God, I speak to that season to open up, the rainy season. The time when the former and the latter come together. And what's been put in the ground grows and before we can harvest it out, it's going right back in the ground again. Almost too good to be true. That's what you call us to, something that's too good to be true. You love us and it's too good to be true. Jesus died for us, it's too good to be true. And you give us heaven, it's too good to be true. Abundant life, too good to be true. Father, I speak of this abundance. Too good to be true, but it's true. Father, cause your word and your will to come together and happen. And thank you, Lord, for being able to stand here and talk about it. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing this song. It's a really Camille is going to declare it uh, prophetically as she sings it. But I don't want you just to listen to it and take it in. I want you to sing it as a prayer, as, a, um, as an answer to God crossing your path right now. For those who understand, God's trying to cross your path right this second and talk to you. He's trying to smile at you. He's trying to get your attention right now. Are you going to respond? As we sing this song right here, the words are so powerful. They're beautiful, but they're powerful. And allow these words to be a declaration in your spirit of what you want God to do.